Listeners, start your engines. Franchise Detours, episode 16. Rob here. You can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. You can leave us a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts, as well as now Spotify. We'd really appreciate it. Help get the word out on this show. Uh, On this episode, we are continuing on our Mad Max mega series. I am joined by film critic Sarah Michelle Fetters to talk about Mad Max 2 a.k.a. The Road Warrior from 1981. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. This is what it has come to. Look! Help them! They're coming back! Come on, move it! Here is where it shall be decided. There it is. Without gas. The Among Us rules the wasteland! I'm gravely disappointed that you wish to take the gasoline out of the wasteland. Defend the fuel. We'll never walk away! Give me the pump, the gasoline, the whole compound. This is a land that prays for a hero. Anyone's gonna get in there, it's gonna be you. Uh... This is Mad Max 2. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're continuing our trek through the wasteland that is the Mad Max franchise with Mad Max 2, a.k.a. The Road Warrior. And I'm honored to welcome to the show Sarah M. Fetters. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really, I'm really touched to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So tell people who you are and everything you have going on. I know you have your, oh. your hands in a lot of, lot of different pots. So tell them where they can find your, your stuff. Well, the, most, the easiest way to find me is at moviefreak.com. I'm the head film critic and editor for that website over at moviefreak.com. But I'm also the film critic and um, chief entertainment writer for the Seattle Gay News here in Seattle, Washington. And then I have freelance for a bunch of different outlets. Most recently, I was you know, doing some stuff for the Seattle Times. And that is really the easiest and quickest ways to find my work as at those places. Awesome. Awesome. So obviously, we're here to talk about 1981's Mad Max 2, aka The Road Warrior. Before we get into this movie mm-hmm. specifically, what was your, what's your history and your, what was your introduction to the Mad Max franchise? Well, this was my introduction to the, the Mad Max. Right? I have this was the this is a lot of people's introductions. Yeah, which we'll get to <laughs> why when it was just me and my mom and my dad before my sister was born, we would live at the movie theater. We would live at the drive in. It was just our thing. It's what we did every weekend. And so we watched The Legend of the Lone Ranger. And my dad was like, let's watch another movie. And so we stayed and we went to the theater right next door and watched the road warrior how did the how how old were you at that point like what because this is not a movie obviously not a particularly a movie for young children how did that 
how did that impact you? Like at that, at watching at such a young age? Yes, Matt. The Road Warrior was probably a bit extreme for a seven-year-old, but because of everything that I had seen and because of how I'd watched all these films with my parents, it didn't feel extreme to me. It just felt like a very cool action film. And a lot of the stuff that I was too young to understand, I didn't pick up on until rewatches when I was in my teenage years. Right. Yeah, that's the thing I think a lot of people miss when they're like, oh, this is not for kids or this is whatever the age appropriateness is, is that it's really all about that context. And parent, I have two kids. I have a five-year-old and a four-month-old. And so it's really all about having, yeah, it's really all about having that, like knowing your kid, first of all, knowing what they can handle. And then like, checking like hey buddy you all right like what's being able to put things in context if they if they like you said if they have questions and i think this is this is a movie a lot of people i think in the in this in the early 80s discovered at at probably too young an age and then <laughs> and then gradually expanded out to oh this is a sequel like what's going on because when you say when you saw it i'm assuming it, there was no knowledge that it was mad max too because mad max wasn't really a thing in the States at that point. Is that correct? That is correct. And you got to remember, Warner Brothers did that on purpose. They scrubbed all mention of Mad Max from this film. It was released in the United States in 1981 as The Road Warrior. You weren't supposed to know that Mad Max even existed. So I had no clue. And what was really crazy was when I finally was able to see the original Mad Max. It was on television and the voice coming out of Mel Gibson wasn't Mel Gibson's voice. Mm-hmm. So that was really crazy. You're sitting there watching it on TV and and the person talking isn't talking the way that you had just heard them speak in the movie. You watched it <laughs> like maybe a year. Because the moment The Road Warrior became a hit, Mad Max showed up on television. So you're sitting there watching it and you're like, wait, that's not that guy. They said, why do they sound different? And I had to have that explained to me. Yeah, that's the funny thing, too. The first one, anyone that has seen Road Warrior, Beyond Thunderdome, or or, or certainly Fury Road, which was my introduction to, to the Mad Max, like I hadn't seen any of these until Fury Road. And then for the for these podcasts, I went back and watched the original trilogy. So anyone seeing those latter three and then going back and watching the first one, it's like night and day because the first one is the origin story. It's the backstory. It's the setup of... This guy had had a sort was was existing in a world that was slipping away, but hadn't quite gone mad yet. There was still some semblance of civilization right before everything chaos ensued. And then Road Warrior exists as a standalone, which is why marketing it as such actually makes sense. Like you you walk into this and it's it has the same mythic quality as like the Man with No Name movies or the the El Mariachi movies or wherever. Like you know, all all this movie gives you everything you need to know about, oh, his family died. They acknowledge that later on in the films. It, it, not that that first one, obviously, you have a richer experience if you see it first, but it's not strictly necessary to follow this one. And I think that's an interesting way to approach a, a movie franchise. While they are technically connected, they are all still imagined as their own separate stories that just so happen to focus on a character who could be the same person or he might not be the same person. Mm-hmm. He's essentially Shane or Yojimbo. He is, he's a wandering ghost who could be the same person, but maybe he is just everybody's idealized thoughts as to what this quiet stranger could be. And because he's, he is, first of all, that's, that's the way of, of, approaching franchises that that doesn't exist in that same way anymore now everything is 
super connected it's shared universe mcu etc everything has 16 spin-offs that all tie together and all of that and this is also this is more the even indiana jones fits into that vibe like yeah he goes on these different adventures yeah he'll run into some familiar faces here and there but it's like you can just jump in and say oh this time he's going on his last crusade all right let's go for the ride <laughs> and i think it it fits that but also it also creates all these fan theories that are people just trying to connect them. They're like, well, is the gyro captain also Jedediah and in beyond Thunderdome is toe cutter also a Morton Joe. And this movie has a couple really big ones. I'm, I'm curious if you're familiar with either of the big fan theories of connecting the other films to this one. Oh, well, you might want to refresh my memory. It's been a while well, since I've had to deal with fan theories involving <laughs> Mad Max. Well, so. well the, fir- the first one is that the, uh, the feral kid is grows up to be Tom Hardy's character, yeah. uh, who I guess in that fan theory, which was debunked because, of course, nowadays they had like a comic series, like prequel yeah. to Met Fury Road. So that like in canon debunks <laughs> that. And then the other one is that Humongous, Lord Humongous, is I guess was supposed to be, or rumor has it, wherever it was supposed to be uh, his partner, Jim Goose from the first film, which I, I, you know, I think that could have been an interesting idea, but I also like the approach that we're talking about. I like that. It's like, no, he just runs around. He just wanders through the desert, occasionally stumbles onto some people that need help. And, and then against his better judgment, sometimes like, do I want to help? I'm good. I'm doing my own thing. And then ultimately he's like, yeah, all right, fine. I'll help you. And, and I liked it. That, that's his journey. Oh, that's, that's I heard that one. That one's funny. That was, that's, that's a, that's a good one, but it's like, don't see how that works. It might've been, maybe that might, that might be less of a fan theory and more like how Miller initially thought of it and then decided against it. But obviously, as you said, maybe it was because the, the actor that did the voice had a Swedish accent he was like, well, no, that's too good not to keep. So drop the, the other plan. We're going to have Among Us be his own thing. I, I don't know. Yeah, he never seems to say that. All he's ever said is that he intended to dub the guy and then like heard the playback and said, I'm not dubbing this guy. This guy sounds awesome. Yeah, no, it works. It works. I really love Humongous and I really love, obviously, uh, Wes is a really interesting character, which so iconic. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, he even shows up in, like I said, I hadn't seen this movie until recently. He shows up in... I think like weird science or something with the like in almost in the same. Yeah. Almost in the same costume, like very much a, a nomadic character in that film. So when I saw him in here, I was like, Oh my gosh, from weird science. And then I did a little digging and I was like, Oh my gosh, Bennett from commando. Like this guy had been everywhere. And I don't know. Cause I grew up with commando, a movie I saw way too early growing up with that movie. So going back and realizing that Vernon Wells was in all these movies, that I that I grew up with was wild, and I, I let's speak to to the the villains in this because oh. the Mad Max movies are known. We had Toe Cutter as the template bearer from the first film, and then we build on it here with a very different, uh, very different villains. But I don't know if I'm gonna say, just as impactful. I would say in a oh, different yeah. way because I I do like Yuki's burn as as Toe Cutter. I, I do. Ha- I have to. I have to. Uh, I have to say, you bring up Vernon Wells and and. There's always a couple things that I always just, I think, are hysterical about Vernon Wells. And that one, he does all the interviews where he says, I, hadn't, I didn't want to do, be in that movie. I had no wish to be in that movie. I didn't think I could play that character. And then they put me in the outfit and I was like, and then I was that character. <laughs> it's one of those things where you can totally see for an actor how hard it is to picture in your head, especially if you've never done anything like that before. It's like that is completely opposite my personality. There's no way I could ever do that. And then you put them in that costume and they realize, oh yeah, 
this is me. And I love that. And and you look at like what happens from Vernon Wells from there forward. And he's like, like you said, he shows up in that brief bit in Weird Science. He is so memorable in Commando. But I love him in like as Mr. Igo in Inner Space. It's like it took me half that movie to realize, oh my God, that's Wes. <laughs> I've had it's like I'm watching that movie in the theater for the first time. And I had absolutely I just like this guy is so scary. He's so weird. He's so just like calm and quiet and deadly. And oh my God, it's the guy from the Raid Warrior. And you think to yourself, he never would have got all of these iconic characters had he not listened to George Miller and and had he stuck to his guns and refused to be in this film. We wouldn't have had all of these other memorable characters. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it, it sounds like the world building that these movies pull off, that Miller is is impeccable. And I've I've already recorded some of the other conversations for this for this mega series. And and it's also it's looking at them all individually, but then in sequence, like it, it they both fit as standalone examples of what a post-apocalyptic world would be like. The first one, obviously, being barely pre-apocalyptic, I guess. But as a piece, you do feel that they like build upon each other, both in the complexity as and as also in just Max's own personal journey and all of that stuff. Thematically, they fit together. But yeah, you could totally imagine Vernon Wells then putting on his mohawk and getting in character and just because it, it's it's so distinctive and so unlike any other vision of like this this movie specifically change the face of post-apocalyptic cinema easily. And famously, James Cameron even said that this was a big influence on, on the Terminator. You can even see that now looking at both films, seeing like the, the post-apocalyptic future war and how, oh, I could see how that's basically a high-tech version of Road Warrior and taking inspiration from that. I, this movie rightfully stands in that pantheon of movies that shaped not only post focus post apocalyptic but also just action cinema in general because of the very thing that you're that you're mentioning and the the way that he he brings these characters into this insane world it, it feels otherworldly in a way you know it, that's the other thing that i think is interesting it must have been interesting for you watching this and then going back to see the original mad max is that that feels tangible that feels grounded in some way whereas these other movies are are in or, or exist weirdly out of time that I guess when these movies were made, Miller's like, these are technically the mid to late 90s or whatever, given that it was 81 at the at the time of this and 79 at the original. But really, you could say it feels like any time and, and it, it, the not too distant future. And I think that's in a way it's perpetuated their legacy. But that again puts the series out of time because those could come around anywhere. And and because they're usually showcased in some flashback or in there, especially in this film, it's like as a as a narration device to introduce you into what you're about to see, you have no idea how long ago all of that footage existed from. And so you don't know when this film actually takes place. Yes, they have said in their heads, this was like five years after Mad Max and Beyond Thunderdome is like 15 years after Mad Max or something like that. But in reality, we don't need to know, which then makes it timeless in a way that unfortunately, because they actually name the date, something like, say, Escape from New York or Blade Runner as incredible and as, as magical and as futuristic or as they can be, because they actually give you dates, they automatically, or even 2001, arguably the greatest science fiction film of all time, because they give you a date. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's also now, as we're talking about it, I'm realizing how strategically 
And obviously this is probably not only a, this is probably in part a budgetary thing on the part of Miller, et cetera, or maybe it's just his, his vision. He's more interested in the before and the after the apocalypse than the during apocalypse. But it makes me wonder, we see what happens right before we see what happens after and in, in great detail. And I know that Furiosa is coming up. It makes me wonder if that's an area of the timeline, not to try and make all this fit together again, after spending so much time talking about how they work so well as standalones. But it makes me wonder whether he's interested in filling in some of that gap through the perspective of Imperator Furiosa's character because it, it lives, leaves that opportunity to do so. Yeah, part of me hopes that he's not. And again, we have no idea. And he has made a career of surprising us with what he is going to do and what he is going to show and where he is going to go as far as his filmmaking is concerned. But part of me really hopes that that is not the case with that one. I admit, as excited as I am to see what that is going to end up looking like and being the fact that it is a prequel, that we know it is that character at a younger age, that does make me a little bit leery because it doesn't, because it automatically, even in the context, even if you don't date it and you don't say when it's happening and you don't, mm -hmm. it still automatically puts it into a time because we know it has to come before what we saw in Fury Road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly exactly my point. And then in preparing for this episode, I'm finding out how much Miller was would just dress the actors and the, in the in the Marauders especially do your own thing, create backstories for your characters, whatever. To the point that it sounds like Vernon Wells, like there was a scene, I guess, with Wes and what is it, the Golden Boy, the Golden yeah. Youth? I forget what he's called exactly. Like I read that very much as a romantic relationship. Sure, and and it's based on what he said or what I read, there was a scene that was cut that he like found him at a younger age and he's more like a father figure. And I'm like, that's not what I picked up on, but okay. And and these I movies are- I really don't think that's what Miller and Kennedy were. No, it, that's not the way I, that's not the way, again, watching this for the first time, that's not the way I saw it. And, and I love the fact that it's neither confirmed nor denied. The fact that these people are so mysterious that we don't know what, Wes's backstory is or Lord Humongous that it's not Goose it's not Tyon call tying together like I like that about it I think these movies are such a, a prime example of less is more in storytelling I think it makes those the villains especially it makes them all seem so much scarier because you're like I don't know this guy looks like he's been through some stuff and I, I don't <laughs> I don't want to cross him I don't, his name is Toe Cutter I don't know how many toes were involved or whatever I'm just gonna <laughs> Stay over here and let him have his space. And they don't change the script. They don't change the dialogue. They don't change anything. They just put the best actor into those roles. And to me, that is almost more groundbreaking than almost anything else that they do in the film. In, in the whole, that, and that's that way for the whole franchise. Don't even get me started on just how amazing it is that Tina Turner is playing who she is in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. That's a that's a perfect segue because I was just literally about to say that the that's something that people will hear next time on the Beyond Thunderdome episode is that my guest and I were really taking a, a step back and looking at how women's roles in this franchise evolve from basically Max's wife in briefly in the first one and then she's essentially more or less fridged for him to grow as a person and just push his backstory, push his, his story forward. 
And then in this one with the warrior woman, and then the next one, anti-entity. And then by the time you get to Fury Road, you're like, oh, damn, Furiosa's taking over the, the movie is, is, is arguably the lead as people will we'll get into that as well. The way that they explode gender convention is just it, it just it, it's really astonishing, especially for a cis male director of this time period. I've always been just really impressed by that. Yeah. For, for context. This is this movie kind of came out the same year as Porky's. Yeah, <laughs> in case people in case people want to like earmark where where uh, mainstream studio movies were at this point. Uh, it's a perfect point. <laughs> I was I was even just like shot in the dark. Like, when did Porky's come out? Because you think like eighties, you think like the the stupid te- sex comedies and stuff. Like, I bet it's around there. And it was exact. It's like the same year or like right around there. It's it's ridiculous. No, it's the same year, 1981. Oh, the, the crazy, not to get too off base, but the crazy thing about Porky's is that people forget that Bob Clark, who did A Christmas Story and Black Christmas, there's actually more male nudity in that movie than there is female nudity. Don't get me wrong, it's still dated. Right. But, but it, is, it is far more feminist for that time period than people give it credit for, which is what makes its two sequels so rancid is because it's like... Those come later, and yet they take like seventy-five steps backwards, and it's it's hysterical. And then, or you look at something, say like Revenge of the Nerds, which yes, is exactly. almost unwatchable at this point in time. That movie is just—it's like how that. And and I'm one for always. You need to watch the film in the. You need to. You can judge it by today's standards, but you also need to watch it in the context of when it was made. But that one is almost impossible to watch at this point with the rape and the misogyny and the sexism that's happening in there. And we're supposed to root for these guys. It's just it's right, exactly really difficult. Yeah. But at this, at, as all of that is going on in mainstream Hollywood yes. studio movies, George exactly. Miller, this is this is happening. And I think that's yeah. a big that's I don't know if how big of a, an impact that made on, on the studio or in the industry at the time or anything. But I think that just it underlines part of why these movies have aged so well and why like in addition to what we were saying them not really feeling placed in a specific year and a specific nobody's walking around with like a walkman or anything but there's there's no like earmarks of oh i see what they're doing it's just it's it's if anything it's just an 80s version of what the post-apocalypse looks like and even then there's a lot of ideas and things in here that are set up that later then miller himself reinterprets you're seeing seeing people people like strapped to the front of cars and things like that in this movie i was like oh okay i see i see where you're going with this later on fury road has a lot of the same kinds of things in a lot of ways this is very feels like very proto fury road in a way and then that's the the mad max film of the original trilogy that he drew most of his own inspiration for would you say i would say that's probably true he's always it's like each film he's trying to top himself in a different way he's trying to figure out how do i put my foot down on that thing and keep you interested not because the car crashes are cool, but because the characters are cool, are cool right. and you want to see what's going to happen to them. I think Guillermo del Toro was talking about this recently when, when people were asking about Nightmare Alley and where he was growing, pulling inspiration from and everything. And he was talking about texting and communicating with, with George Miller and Steven Spielberg during the pandemic. But, but he talks about Fury Road and he's like, I don't know how George Miller did that. I don't know how he kept that movie moving constantly but you're focused on the characters and that's the crazy thing of how he improves himself from say the road warrior 
to to be on Thunderdome to Fury Road is like, how does he get that in his head where he can still maintain that focus on the characters and their individual identities and yet have all of this chaos happening constantly? It's extraordinary. And I think it it helps that he has that first movie to lay the groundwork for Max, but not 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 strictly necessary, like we were saying. But then he surround Mel Gibson with the gyro captain played by Bruce Spence, who's such a memorable supporting cast member, or uh, the feral kid played by Emil Minty, and and obviously Papa Gallo, and uh, all we mentioned Wes, we mentioned Humongous, uh, <laughs> like all these like colorful supporting characters that make the world around. Because obviously Max is is very nonverbal, very physical. And that's his, his presence is very internalized because of the trauma that he's endured. And in a way it, it gives not only, it not only gives Gibson a, something different to play from the first film, but it's, and I drew, I've drawn this, this comparison on another episode of this mega series, but it's similar in a way to Bruce Campbell in the evil dead movies where in the <laughs> evil dead, he's, uh, he, he's more of a regular guy. He endures something horrific, and then time you see him in, in uh, Evil Dead 2, he's a different guy. I think one of the things that I love about The Road Warrior, just from the, a craft standpoint and how one improves as an actor from one film to the next, I think one of the great things that Miller and Gibson really thought about with this movie was that Max should never fully smile. And it's a it's a subtle thing. It's a little thing. It's something that you really don't pick up on until you've watched the film all the way through a couple times. But it's like there are moments where you can tell that Max is slightly amused or even slightly annoyed or something makes him feel in a way that he doesn't want to feel anymore. And he almost smiles. He almost he cra- he cracks like a little bit of a smirk. It's like almost there. And that it was really there with with how he's relating to the feral kid and also how he's relating to Bruce Spence, the the gyro captain. And it's not until the very end when the gyro captain and Max are, are staring at one another after everything has completed. It's the only time in the entire film where Max allows himself to fully smile. And it's for like a second and a half, Mm. but it's, but it's something that the whole film in its own way has been building towards and you didn't even realize it. And it speaks volumes as to the character's humanity and what he rediscovers within himself by going on this adventure. Something that he had because of the events of the previous film, he had allowed himself to cut it, to be cut away from entirely. He rediscovers it here. And it's like this unspoken moment of truth between these two men and what they have dis- what they've survived and what they've discovered. And the irony yep. of the whole thing as to what they've been carrying. Yeah, no, it's it's true. I think it's it, that that's ultimately, I think, from a character's perspective, what makes these movies so interesting, so fascinating is that yeah, obviously there's the world, the world building stuff and all the commentary on society and environmentalism and all that other stuff and all these other things we, we've covered already. But it's also he is he how much can the human spirit endure how much can you handle before you you break before you go completely mad as max would say like he he's gone through all of this stuff and he's endured all this and he's got just basically his survival instincts but even so there's that little piece of him he's his humanity is not fully stamped out it just it it keeps it keeps keeps on keeps on traveling through that wasteland keeps on spinning like the wheels of his interceptor you know yep um 
And you, you get some of that early on with his shaky friendship with the gyro captain. He's, he obviously has a dog with him, which is a classic subtle way of humanizing a character before he even encounters Papagallo and, and the village and all this, uh, everything else that happens. Like you, you, there's a spark there and, and it, it builds slowly as the movie goes. And I think it's that moment that you pointed out where it's, it's reaffirming to us as if you were like, he's the audience surrogate. He's the one traversing this insane world that George Miller's created, stumbling onto adventure after adventure. And he, everything he keeps going through, it, it, he, he keeps on fighting. Like he keeps finding something to fight for. And I think that's in a way, I wouldn't say these are inspiring movies by any stretch of the imagination, but that's what makes us root for him. It's like, he's, he is our, he is humanity incarnate. Like, can we push through all of this, the toe cutters, the Lord among us of the world, et cetera. Like, can we, can we make it through all that and still have some sense of self left? And it's like, hang in there. Max is still, Max is still, 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 still wandering around the wasteland. So there's still hope for you. And I love that part of it as well. Just think from, from where that character, where that character remains, where he grows to and where he, he, his, his foundation. I'm right there with you. And in some ways, these films, it, they couldn't be more timely it, in, in the way that you are just talking about. Right now, with all of us isolated and over two years of having to deal with all of this and so much of society almost wanting to spit into their own face and not believing what is actually happening. It's it's good to see a character in the face of something this gigantically catastrophic yeah. maintain an attachment to their humanity because I think that can actually inspire people to do the same. At least that's that would be my hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I is before we start winding down here. Is there is there anything about Mad Max 2, the road warrior that, that we haven't covered that you want to touch on. Obviously the, the action's insane and, and so, so impactful on, on the movie and, and the genre and, and we'll get to the, this franchise's legacy in a second. Sure. But the one thing we haven't mentioned, and it just goes without saying is just the genius and the brilliance of Dean Sumler's cinematography. Yeah. You're, you're talking about at the time, a guy who had mostly come from indie low budget, documentary film world is shocked to get this phone call to come interview with George Miller to do this movie and discovers that they all have to make it up as they go along almost on the fly. More people ask him about this movie than they do Dances with Wolves. <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is. But look at look at cinematic, look at the film history. With this movie I think not only are people revisiting it in a, in a in a very different way, but I would say it's ultimately had a just as long, if not longer, lifespan than something like Dances with Wolves. Which now I feel like when people talk about it, it's in relation to oh Avatar. It's like Dances with Wolves with cat, cat people. That's where I hear that more reference. Whereas this or, movie, or it's the film, or it's the film that beat Goodfellas for Best Picture. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly. Which is unfortunate because I think Dance with Wolves is a very good movie, but yes, good right. it's, it's yeah. an all-time classic. It's extraordinary. Yeah, more people have, yeah. have looked at Goodfellas <laughs> and examined it yeah. and studied it. It's had much more of a, a, a lifespan. Uh, just right. in the way that the Road Warrior, like you said, now people are still like, man, how do we do what the Road Warrior did in 1981? 
And, yep. and now people are looking at Fury Road in the same way, like, wow, look what he did with this budget. Now look what he did yeah. with this budget and just blow that up. Like that's what it looks like when you give George Miller a hundred and whatever, 150 million or whatever. It's it like you million. get a $150 million version of what he tried, what he was doing in Road Warrior in the first film. And I think that's, that's really interesting. But what is, what is in your mind, the, the legacy of this franchise, like on its impact on film on on, on the action genre specifically, what, well, what's the, the legacy the, of that? The legacy, the legacy is what we just said. It changed action films. This movie going forward changed. It, it, it It's in some ways, you know, you, you can look at certain films and see how they changed the medium from that point forward forever. And when you're talking about cinema history, you're looking at, you're looking at Citizen Kane, you're looking at 2001, you're looking at The Road Warrior, but then you're looking at something like, say, Pulp Fiction, and you're looking at John Woo's Hard Boiled, and you're looking at The Matrix. But there are very few films in history that you can sit there and say, this changed everything going forward. The Road Warrior is one of those films. There's probably 10 to 12 motion pictures in over 120 years of cinema where you can definitively go back and put your finger on it and say, this one, this one right here, everything changed after that. This is one of those films. Yeah, that's the that's the perfect note, I think, to wrap up our conversation on the road, on the road Warrior. You're right, because it is. It's of a franchise that has shaped action cinema and in a way, auteur cinema in a strange way, because like we said, George Miller's singular vision in all four of these movies, and you see what he does. It's so four, four very different levels of mm-hmm. of studio involvement, of mainstream of the industry, like a huge blockbuster to a scrappy indie cult movie that he made for like by working as, as a doctor in emergency rooms and stuff like that. <laughs> And then now with Warner Brothers being like, here's a giant truck of money. I think it, this is the one that really tipped the tipped the hat and and mm-hmm. made made the rest of his career and the rest of this genre possible. So I have to know now. It's it's the this is the point where Sarah, I'm going to ask you for your your ranking of the four Mad Max movies. And again, I know you just said how you just <laughs> backbill this whole series is. So yeah. this is not going to be easy probably, but so yeah, the easy part is, and I love all four films. I absolutely love all four films. I enjoy all four films. I mean, the easy part is going, what are three and four? As much as yeah. I love Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, it's the most, it has the most lumps and it's the one that has the most fits and starts and not all of it works as well. But I also think it's aged beautifully and it's 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 still a lovely film and it's got Tina Turner and it's got Thunderdome. But that would be my four. Mad Max mm-hmm. would be my three as, as low budget and as seat of the pants as it is. It is guerrilla filmmaking at its finest. And it is again, it's 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 the epitome of what Ozploitation was at that time. When you think of Ozploitation, you think of the original Mad Max because that's what birthed the whole thing. So that exactly. for me is my three. So those are easy. When you get to the Road Warrior and Fury Road, it becomes far more complicated. Personally, because of my emotional attachment to the film, what it means for me, I don't think I become the film critic I am today. I think there's a bunch of films that I can say this about. But the Road Warrior is one of those films where it's like, I do not think I do what I do now had I not watched the Road Warrior. It's one of those films I can point to and say, yeah, that movie that movie like Star Wars, that movie like Akira Kurosawa's Ran. I do not become 
so passionate about film and cinema and want to write about it and talk about it and study it if I do not see The Road Warrior at seven years old. I just don't think it happens. So on that level, I have to put The Road Warrior at one. But 1B is Fury Road. Fury Road is, as we've said, it is a masterclass of filmmaking. And it is everything that George Miller learned over a 30-year career, 30, 40-year career. And not just from the Mad Max films, but also from The Witches of Eastwick, from Lorenzo's Oil, from the Babe films, from Happy Feet. He, He had been studying and learning and honing his craft through that entire period and then drop something like Fury Road on all of us, a movie that should not work, a movie that should not even exist, and it is instantly classic. So that is 1B. Yeah. But if my personal ranking, it does go Road Warrior, then Fury Road. That's just, but it's because of the emotional attachment that I have to the Road Warrior. And again, it's like I just said, the Road Warrior is one of a dozen or 15 films where you can actually point in cinema history and say, this changed everything. And so mm-hmm. that also, I think, puts a skosh ahead, but not by not by much. I mean, they're both yeah, they're both genius. Yeah, it's yeah, he he basically changed cinema in in nineteen eighty one and then made made Beyond Thunderdome close out the original trilogy and then waited 30 years. He's like, I don't know. I'm not there really. I don't feel, I'm not feeling Mad Max just yet. And then in 2015, just casually changed cinema again. <laughs> you know, 30 years later, coming back to that franchise. It's, it's, it's a wild, it's a wild, it's a wild ride, this, this, this series of movies. And I, I like, like we, yeah. just, it's, it's hysterical that Mad Max, The Road Warrior, and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome essentially came together and were made relatively quickly as far yes. as those things happen, as far as the, all of that's concerned. Beyond Thunderdome, he had a little bit more time because he actually had major studio backing and all of that stuff. But as far as script to planning to actual filming to release were concerned, those happened pretty quickly. Yeah. Where Fury Road took like 15 years. I mean, like he had that script done in what, 2003, 2004? Something like that, yeah. That had to deal with every every obstacle imaginable, and the fact that he just persevered throughout that whole thing to still bring that movie off—it's I just I can't believe it. It's just yeah. it's unfathomable everything that they went through, and yet that movie still is extraordinary. Yeah, yep, wouldn't exist without the Road Warriors. We talked about like it's nope. the it's the one that brought the franchise into the spotlight, certainly to. US US fans and, and brought it over this way. But I had to say thank you so much, Sarah M. Fetters, for coming on the show to, to talk about the Road Warrior. Like I said, these were all these this original trilogy was all first time watches for me in preparation for these episodes. So uh, this has been really fun to see those movies and then to talk about them and gain such uh, such a rich appreciation from guests like yourself that have been watching these for decades and now I'm like, okay, I get it now. Yeah. So <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and talk about it with me. Can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Yeah, I am pretty lame as far as social media is concerned. I am on Twitter. You can find me at Twitter at Movie Freak Sarah on Twitter. That is where I'm at. I interact with just about anybody, but unfortunately I'm not really that other than that, I'm not really around that much anywhere else moviefreak.com does have a facebook page so i sometimes interact with people there but if you want to talk to me find me on twitter 
I will talk to you. I will talk to just about anybody. Well, you you talk to me, so that's that's proof of that. That's oh, <laughs> you, were you were you were very fun to talk to. Um, I've enjoyed our conversations. Awesome, absolutely. Well, I'll we'll definitely have to talk again soon sometime. This was a lot of fun, Sarah. Thanks. You are more than welcome. Big thanks to Sarah Michelle Fetters for coming on to discuss Mad Max to the Road Warrior. I want to know. Is this you, Was this the first Mad Max film that you saw in this franchise? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table. Same handle on Instagram via email at robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll be back in the wasteland next episode with Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.